But this, this time tonight, we want to spend our time on give and live generously. We want to focus on giving tonight. Where we've talked about how the fact that God is the owner of everything. We've talked about how to be good stewards when it comes to credit and debt. We talked about last week how to be good stewards as workers, faithful workers, and uh, doing so in such a way that it reflects God's glory and gives him the honor and praise, and that we are, are distinct and different in the way that we approach work. And why do we do that? Because God himself is a worker, and we are reflecting him and his character when we work in such a way that, that pleases him. And tonight, we want to focus on giving and living generously. There's my little senseless humor up here tonight. So this is Derek's attempt to make the offering more popular. You can see in his uh, plate that he's passing, offering a cash back. So, so if you give, you can get some cash back. All right. Now, I don't think we're going to practice that here at Grace, but uh, some churches may. All right, so sacrificial giving and generous living in stewardship, our topic for this evening. Passage here from Corinthians. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad and he gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. God loves a cheerful giver, one who is not giving begrudgingly, but is giving generously with an attitude that God has given me everything that I have and he owns it all. So I want to reflect the fact that he is a giving God by giving to others, giving a portion back to him. Okay? But let's first establish giving's relationship to stewardship. I was telling the men as we met a few moments ago, a lot of churches have stewardship pastors. And what do you think their main duties are? The main duty of stewardship pastors in most churches is to raise funds, to bring in more giving, increase the giving at the church. But stewardship, what does that have to do with? That has to do with what remains after you give. Stewardship is managing what you have left. Right? So giving comes first. We give away a portion of what God has given to us, recognizing that he is the owner of it all. But what we maintain, what we keep, is, is what we steward. So there needs to be a separation in our understanding between giving and stewardship. So stewardship isn't primarily about giving. Stewardship is primarily about managing what you keep. Okay? So in our stewardship series, even though this is a stewardship series and our focus tonight is on giving, we understand what the distinctions are between those. 
So as a manager, you are to give away a portion of what belongs to the Lord first through sacrificial giving and allow him to bless that giving. What remains is the amount you manage as his faithful steward. So therefore, giving is a precursor to the practice of stewardship. One must first possess a stewardship mentality. All of this belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to me. And that is your foundation, because if you give in such a way that this all belongs to me and I'm just going to dole out a little bit to God, but this is all mine, that's not the way the Lord wants us to approach giving or stewardship. We have to approach it with an open hand. Whatever the Lord places into our hands, we leave it open. We don't clutch it and hold on to it. It is his to use in the way that he desires to use it. When I give, I am giving a portion of what he has given to me. When I keep, I'm now managing that portion of what remains of what he has already given to me. Now, we're going to be talking about giving, and, and we'll eventually we'll end up in the New Testament. But this is a, a major question that many people have who've come maybe from other churches or had different experiences. Is tithing the minimum standard of giving for the church age believer. When you, if you listen to any kind of financial, Christian financial authors or read their blogs or speakers or read their books, the majority of them have this kind of attitude. That the beginning place for giving for us in the church is the tithe. And that's where it starts. Well, I'm going to demonstrate to you from Scripture tonight that that's not the case. That is not the principle that we follow as New Testament believers, as believers in the church. Okay? So we're going to start with a foundation in the Old Testament. I want you to really understand the purpose of the tithe in the Old Testament, how they functioned, what their purpose was. But as we do that, you need to understand, in the Old Testament... There is voluntary giving, and there is obligatory giving, or giving that is required. There are both of those. And we're going to see, in a sense, there's the same in the New Testament. Most people, when they think of giving in the Old Testament, it's a very monolithic view. Well, in the Old Testament, there was a 10% tithe, and that took care of everything, all giving. Well, that's just not the case. It's a little bit more complex than that. And we're going to see that tonight. So I do want to go through an explanation, and an examination and explanation of tithing and talk about this, how it developed in the Old Testament and what the purpose of it was. And as we go through that, it's going to set the foundation, an understanding of how Israel functioned and how God desired for Israel to function in the Old Testament. First, I want to start off with... Uh, This is actually an example prior to the law of Moses being given, where we have the instructions on tithes. So here's an explanation. This is about Abram. A couple of times in the the Old Testament, before we get to the law of Moses, the tithe is mentioned. Here's one of them. Then after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, 
And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of the Most High God. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, speaking of Abram, gave him, speaking of Melchizedek, a tenth of all. This is the first time we see tenth, a tithe in the Old Testament in Genesis 14. So after defeating Lot's kidnappers, Abram gave a tenth of the spoils of war to Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem. And just note that this word tithe does mean tenth, but it does not necessarily mean 10%. And you're going, what? What? I mean, aren't those equivalent? We're going to see why they aren't in a little bit as we walk through the tithe. Okay? So think of a tenth. Think of a tenth, and we will come back to that. And this practice was according to ancient Near Eastern custom. This was, there was no command of God that we can find in Scripture that would command Abram to give this tenth to Melchizedek. But it was, we seem to think and understand that it was a practice in the Old Testament. And remember, the law of Moses had not been given yet. And then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Ashel, and Mamre. Let them take their share. And then Abram, what did he do? He gave the remaining portion, everything else, he gave it to the king of Sodom, a pagan king. Was there a requirement to do that? No requirement. Right? He gave his, the tenth to Melchizedek. He gave what everything else that remained from the spoils of that, the uh, war and the rescuing of Lot, his nephew. He gave it to the king of Sodom. Not a command of God, but rather this was a way for him to maintain his integrity and his independence. He didn't want to owe any favors to the king of Sodom for fear that he would say, I have made Abram rich. Now Abram owes me something. So, nope, he just gave it all. Okay, But this is just an incidence of where we first see that word tithe or tenth. And again, I remind you, Abram was not under the law of Moses. Okay, so There's no requirement here, no command of God. This is not some practice that was to be followed by the people of God because the law of God had not yet been given. Okay? So the law of Moses had not yet been given. The law of Moses would serve as a covenant with the people in the nation of Israel that have yet to be established through the 12 sons of Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel, and the heirs of those sons. Now there's another example of, of Jacob that. Um, I'm not going through due to time, 
But uh, just one more incidence where the tenth, the tithe, is mentioned. And you can look at that on your own. But the point is, neither Abram nor Jacob gave out the direction or command of the Lord, but rather they each gave according to a cultural practice and their own desires. There was no divinely required pattern of giving established either in Abram's life or in Jacob's life. Now, when we come to the time where the law of Moses is established, we see that as they are, the Israelites are preparing, the second generation that came out of Egypt, as they are preparing to go into the promised land, God gave Moses to Israel as her leader and led them through the wilderness all the way up to the point. We know that Moses was not allowed to go in, only, only two, the two spies were allowed to enter and then all, only the second generation that came out of Egypt. But the Lord gave Moses to the people of Israel as their leader and the law as the nation's constitution. This is how the nation is going to function when it enters into the land. These will be the rules and regulations that will establish your patterns of worship, your patterns of how you are to treat one another, patterns of justice, patterns that will allow this nation to be a separate nation, a nation that is distinct from all the nations around. So that's the law of Moses, which included, as we've talked about here in the beginning, the law of Moses included voluntary provisions for free will and thanksgiving offerings to the Lord, it also included obligatory laws for supporting the nation's civic and religious life under a theocratic government. So really, the nation was governed by the Lord himself. This was a theocracy. Moses was to serve as the leader over that nation who would be the go-between between the Lord and the people. And so this was a unique situation. The nation was to be governed by God, and the law was given directly by God through Moses to the people. And in Deuteronomy, in establishing when they get into the land, the Lord is giving direction here. And here's, here are some directions about giving. Deuteronomy 12, 5 through 7. But you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes. We know that that is going to be Jerusalem and the tribe of Judah. To establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. There you shall bring your burnt offerings. Look at all these different kinds of givings. Burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithes, the contribution from your hand your votive offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock. There we see several different aspects of giving, from voluntary giving to obligatory giving, <coughs> giving that is required. There also and your household shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Right? So there is voluntary giving under the law of Moses. I want to give you just a couple of examples of that. In Exodus, tell the sons of Israel, from Exodus 25, to raise a contribution 
for me from every man whose heart moves him. Is that required or voluntary? It's voluntary, right? This is voluntary giving. In Exodus 36, they received from Moses all the contributions which the sons of Israel had brought to perform the work of the construction of the sanctuary. What was the purpose of this giving? It was to build the sanctuary. And they still continue bringing to him free will offerings every morning. And the workers who were gathering all this, they said to Moses, the people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work. So Moses issued a command for them to stop giving. They gave so much that Moses had to say, stop. We have more than what we need to build the tabernacle. So this is voluntary. The people gave. Remember, they took all the spoils when they left Egypt, and they brought them with them. So they had very much. And in the wars along the way, the peoples that they conquered. So what was, again, the purpose of the free will offering in Exodus? It was for the construction of the tabernacle and its contents. Completely voluntary. No requirement. There's also a a similar type of call to give in 1 Chronicles 28. And there, then the people rejoiced because they had offered willingly, for they made their offering to the Lord with a whole heart, and King David also rejoiced greatly. What was the purpose of the giving in 1 Chronicles 29? This time, it's for the construction of the temple. So now the tabernacle was temporary, movable. But now that they had gone into the land and the Lord had established them as a nation and King David had this desire in his heart to build a temple for the Lord, well, the Lord did not allow him to build it. But the Lord did allow him to make preparations for his son to build it, Solomon. So this call went out, give And they gave willingly. Again, it's not mandatory giving. It's not obligatory. Okay? So those are just some examples of voluntary giving in the Old Testament. But I do want to return to uh, tithes and try to give you a a more solid understanding of, of tithes. Because there's many misconceptions. There's great confusion that remains among believers today. There is inaccurate teaching in many churches. There is a misunderstanding of the purpose of tithes in the Old Testament. And there often tithes, tithing is often incorrectly suggested as the starting point, as I mentioned earlier, or the minimum amount of giving for church members. Well, let's see how this is perpetuated. In a section called Training Wheels, and you'll probably recognize this name, and it's, it's a good book, The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. So he teaches on tithing. So he says the tithe is God's historical method to get us on the path to giving. In that sense, it can serve as a gateway to the joy of grace giving. In other words, here's what's required, and once you get beyond what's required, now you can start really giving joyfully, freely. 
It's unhealthy to view tithing as a place to stop, but it can still be a good place to start. Tithing isn't the ceiling of giving, it's the floor. That's the kind of, of teaching that is often told and retold and taught in churches. And I bet several of you have come from churches where that maybe was the practice. Okay? Um, one of the issues with uh, some of these authors is they're not, they're not theologians. They haven't studied these things thoroughly, but yet they're writing on them, and they're very influential over other people. Not saying anything bad against Randy Alcorn. Great, I'm sure. You know, he's a very um, sacrificial man, giving man, and this is a really good book, okay? But I wouldn't endorse every single thing I find in it. One of my heroes, Larry Burkett, you've heard me mention him and quote him in weeks past. He says, the word tithe means one-tenth. It's the minimum portion that a Christian should tithe. The tithe's purpose is to be a testimony of God's ownership, and thus it is meant to be individualized. Again, more teaching like this. This is continually taught in churches. Let me start you out then with a tithing quiz. This comes from Stewardship Ministries, which is one of the, the few online sites I've found that really has a solid understanding of this. So, ask the question here, true or false? Jesus never tithed. Let me hear you. True, false. I've heard some both. True. We don't have any incidents at all of Jesus tithing. Now you say, well, just because the Bible is silent on it doesn't mean he didn't do it. He was under the law, and certainly as a son of the law, he would follow the law. Absolutely, he would. But we're going to see that the tithe would not have applied to him. True or false? The Apostle Paul, now we're talking about the Apostle Paul, the saved Paul, not Paul the Pharisee, or Saul the Pharisee, prior to his conversion in Acts 9. True or false? The Apostle Paul tithed and taught the New Testament church to tithe in his epistles. False. False. He didn't. True or false? The first fruits offering and the tithe were the same thing in the Old Testament. It's false. True or false? In the Old Testament, the people were required to tithe first, and then any giving over that amount was considered a free will offering. False again. True or false? The tithe that was brought to the storehouse in Jerusalem came from the Levites, not the people of Israel. It was a tithe of the tithe that they had received from the people. True. True or false? The Old Testament tithe was based on a person's increase in assets, not on his annual income. True. Hmm. Not doing so well, huh? <laughs> True or false? In the Old Testament, the tithe was not a fixed percentage. That's true. I gave that one away a little while ago, actually. True or false? The tithe was never money, but consisted of food so that the priests and Levites would have something to eat. True. True. 
True or false? The priests and Levites who received tithes could not personally own any land themselves. True. All right. I like that conviction. True or false? Tithing was a kind of property tax system used in Israel to underwrite its national administration, festivals, and welfare services. True. <laughs> Some of you are like, where is he getting this stuff from? True. All right. So let's, let's return then to the obligatory giving under the law of Moses. Let's talk about this tithing and let me provide you with an overview of it here. Okay. Tithing was instituted by God through the law of Moses. The law of Moses applied only to Israel and applied and the tithe applied only to the landowners of Israel that raised crops or herds. Probably haven't uh, been aren't familiar with that such a restrictive and uh, definition. There were three separate tithes that are prescribed in the law of Moses. They total approximately 23 and a third percent. Why do I say that? Well, there were three different tithes. And it basically came down to a three-year cycle. 20%. So two tithes per year. 20%, 20%. Or a tenth and a tenth. Two tenths. Second year, same thing. Third year, a third tithe was added for another tenth. So if you average those out, it's about 23 and a third per year. But the cycle was basically two-tenths, two-tenths, three-tenths. Two-tenths, two-tenths, three-tenths. Let the land rest. Two-tenths, two-tenths, three-tenths. Two, two, three, let the land rest. Okay? So let's talk about that here. Tide number one, the Levitical tithe. You can see this in Leviticus 27. Thus all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or of the fruit of the tree, tells you what the tithe is here. It is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. For every tenth part of the herd or flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He is not to be concerned whether it is good or bad or nor shall he exchange it, or if he does exchange it, then both it and its substitute shall become holy. It shall be re not be redeemed. Here in this context, holy to the Lord, there's two concepts of holiness that we find in Scripture. And the foundational, fundamental understanding of holiness that we find in the Old Testament is separateness. When something was holy, that means it was separated from the common and used only for a particular purpose. When God says, I am holy, I am separate from everything else that exists. Easiest way to define God. Put God on one side, everything else on the other side, and draw a line. God and everything else. God is separate from his creation. He is the creator. Everything else is created. He is completely separate from. Does that make sense? Separate. Okay? The Levites were separated from the other tribes. The priests were separated from the other tribes so that they would serve 
in the temple in that capacity. Okay? So that was, that's the primary understanding. It also includes that understanding of his, in a sense, his, his righteousness, his purity. Okay? So something that separates but is righteous, pure, that holiness. And we see that more developed for us in the New Testament. And that's what we commonly identify holiness with. But here, it is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. It is separate to the Lord. Okay, so let's break that down a little bit. So it's the yield of the produce of the land. The seed of the land, as it's specified in those verses, and the fruit of the tree. Crops. It's food. And then, every tenth animal of the herd or flock. Don't pick the best or the worst. These are not sacrificial animals. Okay? But these are given for a particular purpose that we will see here, for the Levites. And it's not the first of every ten, but the last of every ten. So in other words, you put the rod down, have your animals cross through, and if you have nine animals that cross under the rod, how many do you give? Zero. If you have ten, how many do you give? One. If you have 13, how many do you give? Is that 10%? No, it's every tenth. If you have 19, how many do you give? One. 23? Two. Okay? So if a man has only 19 animals, he's going to give one. It's the last of every tenth that passes under the rod. So it's not a fixed percentage when it comes to the animals. You can't divide up the animals. Wouldn't work, would it? I'm going to have one and one-third of an animal. Well, you might as well give two, right? Because that animal's dead. Okay? So not exactly 10% because animals are indivisible when it comes to the tithe. The requirement applied to landowners only who were living in the land of Israel. Farmers... Right? Let's give us this common vernacular. Those who produced crops and the fruit of the land. And then ranchers who had herds and flocks, animals they raised. This is where the tithe comes from. And it's not based on income, but it's based on an increase in the assets. Right? The crop comes in, whatever was increased you give a tenth of that to the Lord or the Levites, also the animals. Notice this, very important. Those assets were God-created and sustained. Very important. They're not man-made. Who's the one who will give the increase when it comes to crops and herds? The Lord so in their giving, they are dependent upon the Lord. That's why the Lord said, don't, don't break away from my commands. Don't stop the tithe. I'm the one that will bless you. So these, these a tenth of the crops, a tenth of the herds would go to the Levites. And why? 
Let's read that in Numbers 18. To the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service, which they perform a service in the tent of meeting and later in the temple. They shall have no inheritance among the sons of Israel. Were Levites permitted to own land? If you don't own land, how can you raise crops or herds? You can't. How do they provide for themselves food? The tithe. The Lord provided for them so they could give their full-time ministry to the tabernacle and later to the temple so that they could serve the Lord fully in that capacity. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Moreover, you shall speak to the Levites and say to them, When you take from the sons of Israel the tithe which I have given you, From them for your inheritance, then you shall present an offering from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. So how were the Levites to give? From the tithe. All the nation gives a tenth. And then from that tenth, they give a tenth. The Levites do. That is their way of giving. Your offering shall be reckoned to you as the grain from the threshing floor, or the full produce of the wine vat. So you shall also present an offering to the Lord from your tithes, which you receive from the sons of Israel. Again, addressing this to the Levites. And from it, you shall give the Lord's offering to Aaron, the priest. Out of all your gifts, you shall present every offering due to the Lord from all the best of them, the sacred part of them. Okay? So, the Levitical tithe. This is given as food to support the Levites who served, in the Lord, served the Lord in the temp, tabernacle and later in the temple. As we said, the Levites did not own land. They did not raise crops or flocks. They had no inheritance in the land. So this was an acknowledgement that only the Lord could provide. Because only he can give the increase when it comes to the crops, the produce of the land, the herds, the flocks. And he's saying, I am going to sustain you. This is the way it's going to work for you. And every time, it will be a recognition that all of this comes from me. You you cannot produce crops yourself. You can only sow the seed, but it is the Lord who causes the growth, right? Then the Levites were to choose the best one-tenth of the tenth given to them, a tithe of the tithe, and give it to the priests. So you have the Levites, then you have the sons of Aaron within the tribe of Levi who served as priests. And they were to be supported in this manner. Back in Deuteronomy, you shall surely tithe of all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God, the place where he chooses to establish his name. The tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd of your flock so that you may learn to fear the Lord always. This is now we come to the festival tithe. Tithe number two. Okay, so this is a separate tithe from the Levitical tithe. Again, this is from the yield of the produce of the land. In those verses, tithes of your grain, new wine, oil, And firstborn animals, the firstborn of your herd or flock. 
But then, so the festivals, what happened? You have the people established in the land, the 12 tribes, all throughout the land of Israel. What did they do for the festivals? They came together, right? And for many, it would be a long journey. And to bring all of that tithe could be quite cumbersome. So the Lord allowed a provision for those who were coming from long distance. If the distance is so great for you that you are not able to bring the tithe, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set his name is too far away from you when the Lord your God blesses you, then you'll exchange it for money. So you're taking and exchanging that tithe for money here. You bring it to Jerusalem with you. Then you spend it on whatever your heart desires. For oxen, sheep, wine, strong drink, whatever your heart desires. And there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. These were part of the regular festivals that Israel was to have on an annual basis. And this was provision for that. So there was allowance for exchange and then purchase later when you got to the destination in Jerusalem because the traveling distance may be too far. You sell your produce or your animals for the money, bring the money on your journey, purchase food and drink upon your arrival, and then partake in the festival celebrations with everyone else, rejoicing in what, how the Lord has blessed the nation, bringing them together. But there is this reminder, don't neglect the Levite. You want him to join in the celebration too. So bring portion for him. Okay? So those first two tithes, one-tenth each of those. Tithe number three that I mentioned earlier, the poor tithe. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the alien, the orphan, and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work your hand the work, all the work of your hand, which you do. Okay? So recall the seven-year cycle of Sabbaths. The land was to be given rest in the seventh year. So this allows for, these, for two cycles of three years each. Every third year, third year, let the land rest. Every third year, third year, let the land rest. So every third and sixth year of that cycle, a tithe was to be taken and stored within the city where the people lived. What was it intended for? This is really welfare for Levites, aliens, orphans, and widows. The Lord wanted to provide for them as well. So this is the way that the Lord is providing on a very practical level for the nation of Israel. The Lord blesses the nation. The nation recognizes that by giving the tithes to support the Levites so that they can be fully uh, engaged in ministry to the people. He also gives the other tithe, right? The second tithe, the festival tithe, so that they can rejoice together. And then the poor tithe. Reiterate here, it was not based on income, but on the increase in the assets. It served as a kind of property tax in Israel, It affected only landowners with crops and herds in the land of Israel. 
It was used to support the Levites, the priests, and the poor. And on an annualized rate, about 23 and a third of the increase of the produce in flocks. So, the tax came on whatever the Lord blessed them with. It was a recognition that God was their sovereign king and ruled over them. And we see what happens when Israel later rejects God as their king and chooses their own. But these were only in effect under the law of Moses for the nation of Israel. So take all that and try to apply that to the church. We're not Israel. We're not living in the land of Israel. Not all of us own vast acres of land. We're not farmers, ranchers. We don't live in a theocracy. You see how this was all practical for the nation to function according to the way God designed it. Does that make sense? Then we see additional giving under the law of Moses. Free will offerings, which consisted of burn offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, trespass offerings, first fruit offering, firstborn offering. Okay? So there's, there's much more. And, you know, that's the, the limit of, of what I can do tonight, right? Just wanted to present to you those three tithes, understand the purpose of those in the Old Testament. But let me, before I move on to the New Testament, I want to talk about the number one misinterpreted passage on tithing. And you hear this all the time. Will a rant from Malachi 3, will a man rob God? Right? You can just hear the pastor preaching it, right? When the uh, giving is low, here's the pastor preaching. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing until it overflows. Pastors will preach that and just apply that directly to the church with no real explanation of what's going on here in Malachi. We were to take a look at Malachi. You can see that the book begins by speaking of the failings of the leaders of Israel. The priests were offering blemished sacrifices. Chapter 2, God's name was being defiled and the people were practicing idolatry. Why? Why was that the case? Well, this tithe that we spoke of the tithe of the tithe was not being collected and placed in the storehouses. Therefore, the Levites began working in the fields. But they were forbidden to do that. What happens? They, start, they don't have food. The tithe is not being brought to them to support them. What do they have to do? They go out and work in the fields. What happens to the te temple ministry? Falls to the side. People practice idolatry. God's name is defiled. There's no spiritual leadership to lead the people. No, no re reliance upon the Lord. No recognition of him. So God's name is defiled. So as a result, the tithe of the tithe was not being brought to the storehouses in Jerusalem. It's not talking about the church. And the temple service was being neglected. 
Israel was robbing God by failing to obey the law of Moses in this vital area of ministry. They failed to obey the commands of the Lord, the very method by which their nation would be blessed, the method by which they would continue to recognize God as the giver of all things, the sustainer, their sovereign ruler. And they robbed him. All right? So that should give you just a a brief overview of tithing. And I bet if we took the uh, quiz again, you'd all do much better this time. So let's just move on for the last few moments here. Some of the giving principles in the New Testament. I would highly commend to you a series by our pastor, John, Pastor John MacArthur, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. It's a great series. He talks about stewardship and giving. Excellent. I would highly encourage you to listen to that. Find it. You can find it on Grace to You. Stream it and listen to it. But as we come to giving principles in the New Testament, there is voluntary giving and obligatory, maybe giving should be in quotes here. Um, In this, for us, there is voluntary giving in the church. Our obligatory giving is really taxes. Right? We live under the rule of law. We live here in a nation that has laws and they require taxes. Yes, they may abuse that. But yet, Scripture is clear, the New Testament is clear, Romans 13 is clear, that we are to pay our taxes. Those taxes provide public services for us. Roads, bridges, police departments, fire departments. Right? So, in a sense, we have that obligatory giving that supports our government and how they should um, use that for the benefit of the people and to maintain a a society under the rule of law. But as we go to the Gospels, giving in the Gospels, during Christ's life and ministry, well, the law of Moses was still in effect. Therefore, tithing was still in effect as we go through the Gospels. Yet, there were timeless, the timeless principle of, of giving freely and generously to others in the Old Testament was reiterated by Christ. Remember, there was not only obligatory giving in the Old Testament under the law of Moses. There was voluntary giving. Remember the examples. Giving for the tabernacle. Giving for the temple. And other times, other opportunities that were there. There should be that attitude the desire to freely give and give in a generous manner. Look here at Luke 6.38. Give, and it will be given to you. These are the words of Christ himself. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Be generous, and the Lord will be generous to you. This is not health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. No, this is principle of reaping and sowing, having a generous attitude, giving generously. You cannot outgive the Lord. After Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, we see that the law of Moses is no longer in effect. 
When Christ died, the veil was ripped from top to bottom, indicating that the law of Moses, that whole system was done away with. The old covenant was done away with. And the law of Christ goes into effect. And we really see that as there's a transitionary period from under the law, under the old covenant, to the church age. And the church is born at Pentecost, and there's this transition away from the law and under the law of Christ. So since the law of Moses is no longer in effect after the cross, tithing is no longer necessary. There's no longer a Levitical priesthood to serve in the temple. No longer a need to support them. So the tithe is done away with. Giving for the Christian is now based on a set of biblical principles. And there are numerous examples of sacrificial giving that are provided throughout the New Testament. We'll briefly look at some of those. Since the Israelite economy no longer existed under the Mosaic law, all required giving under the law ceased. Done away with. No longer needed. Tithing is no longer necessary. Since the Levitical priesthood and their service in the temple had been abolished, so there's no longer a need to support that ministry. I think of the, the words of the Apostle Paul in Acts 20. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. This is the kind of attitude that we must transition to. If you think that your giving is obligatory when it comes to the church, I must give this no matter what, no matter what my hard attitude is, that's not the way we are to give. We are to understand that it is a blessing to give, that we should give with open hands, freely give. 2 Corinthians 8, there's an example from the churches of Macedonia. Okay, These churches that were established in Macedonia, this is the first churches that are established in Europe, apart from the land of Israel, on Paul's second missionary journey in Macedonia and Greece. So you have uh, the Philippian church, the church at Berea, the church at Corinth, right? These churches are established. They have no Old Testament background. Most of these people were pagans saved out of their, their pagan idolatry. But they understood the transformation that takes place in the life of a believer. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches in Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance and joy of their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. I like to say, be a conservative spender and a liberal giver. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participating in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they gave, first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. See, they had that attitude of not only giving generously, but living generously. 
They gave themselves to the ministry. They gave themselves to loving the brethren. They gave themselves to the ministry of evangelism. They had that kind of attitude because they understood the life from which they had been rescued. They understood that they now had a new owner. They understood that he is a benevolent and giving owner, not a harsh taskmaster. And they desired to serve him with hearts of gratitude and to give to those in need, even though they themselves were poor. They gave, not just according to their ability, but beyond. Their generosity overflowed from a heart of thanksgiving and love for and devotion to the Lord. They gave sacrificially. They gave willingly, according to their ability and beyond their ability, of their own accord. They begged for the opportunity to give. Wow, what kind of attitude is that? They begged for the opportunity to give to others who were in need. That's quite a transformation of heart, is it not? And they viewed giving as a privilege. They were very deliberate and proactive. They didn't come on a Sunday morning and as the offering containers are passed, say, oh, I better give something. Pull out my wallet. Okay, I got a five. Pop it in. No, they were very deliberate and proactive, not just reactive. They deliberately desired to give. Look in chapter 9, 2 Corinthians. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one should do as just as he has purposed in his heart. Not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. You can see the rest there. This is the kind of attitude that we are to have. You cannot outgive God. Give generously. Paul reminded the Corinthian church of their commitment. The Corinthians in the church had determined that they were going to send a, an offering, collect an offering and send it for the believers in Jerusalem who had great need. Paul reminded them of the principle of sowing bountifully in order to reap bountifully. 2 Corinthians 9.7 really serves as a, one of the primary texts on giving in the New Testament. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Give purposefully, not just impulsively. Give freely, not under compulsion. And give cheerfully, not greedily or from stinginess. Not just what is left over. Paul also reminded them that God is the supplier of grace in money matters. And will make certain that they have everything that they need from God and find contentment because of their trust in him. The result will be increasing thanksgiving to God. They will learn that they cannot outgive God. 
Why? He had already given the greatest gift of all, his own son. In verse 15, Paul says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Want to be like God? God gave. What did he give? His own son. He gave his own son to redeem us from sin and death. That was the price that had to be paid. And the father freely gave the son, and the son willingly gave himself for us. Our giving should be a reflection of that, that kind of attitude. Some practical advice on giving. I'll just start here with uh, 1 Timothy 6. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and to share. There it is. Give generously. Live generously. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future because their mindset is not here. It is on the future with Christ so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed, eternal life. So some practical giving advice. You need to turn this question from how much should I give to how much should I keep? You're a steward. You're a manager. It's not yours. Lord, how much do you want me to keep? How much, Lord, do I need? We often want to fulfill all our wants, right? Beyond our needs, we want to fulfill our wants. But the steward says, it all belongs to you, Lord. How much do you want me to keep? How much is enough for me to sustain my family after I give? That's the question we really need to ask ourselves. Giving must take the highest priority in your budget. There's no predetermined percentage that's required. All giving for us is voluntary when it comes to the, the church and to charitable giving. You can choose to give a certain percentage, but that's not required. Okay? You can choose 7%, 9 15 20 30 50 70 I'm sure that there are men who have that capacity, that the Lord has blessed them in such a way. They could give away well more than half their income and be fine. And I know there's others of us where you may say, you know what, $5 is pushing it for me in my situation. But it's that hard attitude. It's all voluntary. Giving may be directed to any number of recipients. Tax deduction should not be a priority for you, especially since the standard deduction is going up so significantly. Giving should be made to the church first. That should be your priority. But giving can also be to gospel-centered charities, 
And I'm just listing some other ideas here. This is not a comprehensive list. But go down the list. You can come up with your own ideas as well. Because this is a, a, a lifestyle. Okay, I don't just come to church. I give my 10%. I fulfilled. I can check that off. My holiness list of things to do. And I'm done. This is a heart attitude, a lifestyle. And let's just look at some of the attitudes we should have. Giving should be worshipful. This is an act of worship to the Lord. It should be cheerful. It should be voluntary. It should be generous. Sacrificial. Deliberate. Purposeful. Consistent and future-oriented. Looking to our future home. Not laying up treasures here, but laying up treasures there. You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. Right? So as long as you're following these principles and seeking the Lord while also providing for your family, give what you determine to give out of a thankful heart. Don't just give generously. Live generously. I'm going to end with just a great passage here. Galatians 2.20. Paul writes here, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. These last words here, just amazing. Who loved me and gave himself up for me. That is the attitude that drove the Apostle Paul. That is the way he lived his life. Men, I pray for us that the Lord would break us down, take our pride away, Give us humble hearts so that we will have this kind of attitude. This has just been a brief overview. But hopefully it has given you a biblical understanding, the foundation from the Old Testament, the understanding of of giving for us now in the New Testament, and the kind of attitude that we should have as we approach giving. Let me pray and the men will come. We're going to sing, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. So pray with me. Father, we um, are greatly challenged by what we have heard tonight. I myself, looking in the mirror, preaching to myself, understanding that there is much change that it needs to be made. And I pray for these men that that they are encouraged because of the God whom we serve, that you are a God who is giving. You give beyond what we can ask or imagine. You have given your only son for us. It's a very small thing for us to give our lives to you and everything that we have because we know it is from you. Lord, we thank you for 
Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us so that we might be saved. We might have a new perspective that looks to the eternal and not just the material. Lord, I pray that you would use this in the lives of these men and those who hear these words, that they would bring honor and glory to you in the way that they give. We pray this in your name. Amen.